0: Welcome, you're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, believe it or not, this is not the first time that I've preached to an empty auditorium I've practiced this before at my first church. On a regular basis, I would go down to the church on Saturday evenings. We just lived a couple hundred yards from the church, and so virtually every Saturday evening I would go down to the church and turn the lights on, and there all by myself, I would preach my Sunday morning sermon to an empty auditorium. I would do so once or twice, depending on how good I felt about the sermon. And so now in these unprecedented times in which we live, I am forced to do the same thing again. But knowing that in this case, while the sanctuary is empty, you will be watching this in the comfort of your own homes sometime on Sunday. There has always been good and bad aspects of watching sermons online. The good, of course, is the access that you have to nearly any preacher that you want to listen to at nearly any time that you want to Listen to him. The bad is, at least for me, that you might discover a better preacher than you hear here every week, though I'm confident that will be a search that will take quite a while. No, seriously, the bad is that we are in control. And by that I mean that we can tune in or turn off whenever we want to. When we don't hear what we like, when we don't like what we hear... When it gets a little too personal, it is all too easy to just turn it off and find something else. I have to admit, last Sunday morning as I was watching various services, I struggled with that very same thing. I struggled with looking at my phone rather than paying full attention to what was being said. I I struggled with turning one man off in search of another, and so I know how difficult it is to watch online The negative side of online watching is also the fact that you just might get used to it. It might become comfortable. You see, we don't have to dress up. We don't even have to take a shower, for that matter. There's no getting in the car or fighting with your spouse or kids on the way to church. We just pour ourselves a cup of coffee, find our favorite recliner or couch, and then we are ready to turn on the remote and watch a sermon but I want to remind you before we get to the Scripture that this online experience is a necessary convenience, one that we are grateful for, but it is not a substitute for truly being part of the church. We are just a few weeks now into this social distancing, as we are calling it, with no idea of how long this is going to last. But surely you are already sensing and seeing how much you miss being around other people. And that is part of what the church is about. The fellowship, the relationships that we enjoy with our fellow believers is something that a screen simply cannot replace. So for the coming weeks, we will be online, that will be our necessary platform, But at the same time, I hope it makes you long for the time when we will all be back together in person. And when we do get back together, I have already learned something from these days. You see, for all of my ministry, there have always been those who, rather than shaking hands, they want a hug. And knowing that I'm not the most affectionate person, they will sometimes say to me, well, well, I'm a hugger as if I have no say in the matter, and therefore I must hug in return, and that is usually what happens. But now I've got a better rebuttal. And so when we get back together and someone says, well, I'm a hugger, my response is going to be, well, I'm a social distancer. and They're going to have to learn to live with that. Well, having said all that, it's time to get to the matter of the day. You do not need me giving you tips on staying healthy, you've heard enough of those. You do not need me giving advice on how to stay busy at home. You've heard that as well, and more than likely, you've still been bored. What I believe you need from me is what I've been called to do, and that is to open the Bible, seek to explain a text of Scripture, and apply it to our lives. And since all of Scripture is inspired by God and therefore applicable to all of us, we are going to simply pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. And yes, you have no excuse for not having a copy of God's Word, whether that is a printed or digital form. I'm confident you have one in your home. You can even pause right now if you didn't think to bring it, and you can go get it. When you do, I invite you to be finding 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And today we are going to be taking yet another test. This time it is a DNA test. 1 John chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers." DNA testing is a rather popular thing these days, not just in the criminal field, but also in the field of genealogy. People want to know their ancestry, where they have come from, and who they are related to. In fact, multiple cold case crimes have now been solved across our country, because someone loaded up their DNA to a genealogy website and they were able to make a match from a family long ago. So this morning we are going to do a spiritual DNA test. And the difference between the regular DNA test and the spiritual one that we are doing is that we are not digging into our past, but rather we endeavor to examine our present. And in examining our present, we will come to the conclusion about who our true Father is. And like it or not, there are only two options. Verse 10 makes that abundantly clear. And so we are going to begin with a diabolical heritage. Now I realize that it's been a few weeks since we've looked at this letter of 1 John, And there have been many things on our minds during that time. So it is likely that you have forgotten some of what we've talked about, and therefore a brief review will be helpful. Plus, we probably have some new faces in our audience this morning who have not been with us on this journey. So I remind you that John is writing to a group of believers who are in a church, or perhaps in a group of churches, and they have endured what we would call a church split. Some of you are familiar with that. You know the pains and heartaches that go along with that. And so in this case, some have left the fellowship, and they have done so over doctrinal issues. These were serious issues involving one of the fundamentals or the orthodox doctrines of our faith, which in this case is the very deity of Christ. Is Jesus really God? But those who have left have not been content with merely leaving. They are still trying to get those who remain, in some cases, to leave with them. And so their theological and doctrinal error concerning the deity of Christ has also resulted in moral and ethical failures on their part. And like I've said often, doctrine always drives behavior. What we believe does in fact come out in how we live. Something perhaps we're seeing during these difficult times of crisis. And so while they are claiming to be spiritually superior, they are claiming that they know God in perhaps a deeper and fuller way than others. Their lives do not demonstrate the profession that they are making. And in some cases, they are even claiming that they have no sin. The fact is, they are personally deceived, and they are intent on deceiving others. They think that because they know God, it now does not matter how they live their lives. They can live any way they please. Sounds sort of contemporary, doesn't it? remind you that I do not have to make the Bible relevant. It is not my job to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. And this is another case in which we see that. Because we have the same situation today with many believing that because they believe, it doesn't really matter how they live. I've invited Jesus into my heart, I've prayed a prayer, I've walked an aisle, I've been baptized, I can live any way I want, and I am eternally secure. Now, to combat this, John has set forth a series of tests. These tests have been both theological and practical. And these tests have been designed to do two things. One, to assure those left behind, that is, those who have remained in the church or churches, that their faith is indeed genuine, so that they will not be deceived. In fact, we saw it again in these verses where he says, "...little children, do not be deceived." In the same vein, he is writing to show that those who have left, regardless of their profession, and in spite of what they claim, are not true believers. And in the same vein, it is our responsibility this morning to examine our own lives, to see which camp we fall into. Our task is not to point our finger at others, nor to think about who may or may not be in one of these two heritages. Our task is to examine our own lives, to turn the searchlight inward. Now again, and especially because we might have some new viewers this morning, I am not talking about works salvation and neither is John. What we are talking about is biblical truth. And that biblical truth is that genuine faith is evident in our works. True faith works. Meaning we bear fruit, and that fruit gives evidence of our parentage. Jesus said on multiple occasions that people can be known by their fruit. They will recognize you by your fruit, that is, by the way you live your life. And so those with a diabolical heritage, that's where we're still at at the moment, John says those who with a diabolical heritage live a life of sin. Now don't turn this off. I told you at the outset that's one of the temptations of online listening or online watching, that you are in control and you can turn this off anytime you want to. But if this describes you, you need to know that. And you need to know that there is A remedy. So let's start by defining a life of sin. Sin is one of those words that we don't like much anymore. In fact, we don't even use it much anymore. And because we don't like it nor use it, we may not even understand how the Bible uses it and what it really means. It is obvious that the word sin or sinning is very prominent in this passage that I've just read. Some think that sin is basically anything that is fun. I mean, God doesn't want us to have fun. So if it's enjoyable, if it's fun, then that must be sin because God doesn't want us to enjoy life. Others go to the opposite extreme and conclude that virtually nothing is sin. After all, the mantra is, if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, go for it. And therefore, they rationalize everything away. And neither one of these conclusions is of course correct. Our text actually very clearly defines what sin is for us. Look again at verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. The word lawlessness is a very simple word in the original. It is the word law with a negative prefix added. It originally meant missing the mark and was used of a warrior who missed his opponent in battle. That is, he did not hit the target. It was also used of a traveler who was not on the right path to his or her destination. Now here, of course, it is used in reference to those who miss the mark of God's law. You see, our definition of sin is contingent upon the standard by which we are looking to. The standard is not my conviction or yours. The standard is not my opinion of what is right or wrong, nor your opinion of what is right or wrong. The standard, John says very clearly, is God's law. Theologians have long divided sin into two broad categories. They call them the sins of omission and the sins of commission. A sin of omission is something we fail to do that God has told us that we ought to do. For example... If you fail to love your neighbor, the Bible clearly says we are to love our neighbors. And if we fail to do that, that is a sin of omission. A sin of commission is anything we do that God tells us we ought not to do. And here we can think about the Ten Commandments, just to give you a few examples. God says there that we ought not to have other gods before us. That is, we ought not to worship any other god. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and on and on we go there. And so, if we commit some of those things, that is a sin of commission. So, the standard is not how you measure up against someone else, often popularized by the statements that go something like this I'm better than most people, or I'm a good person. And those statements, in one sense, might be true. But the definition of sin is not are you better than the majority? The definition of sin is the breaking of God's law, which means all of us are sinners. Now, that does not mean that everyone has a diabolical heritage. And so we must go deeper and further into this text in an effort to determine whether or not we have a diabolical heritage. And so we move from not only defining a life of sin... But we move to describing a life of sin. The biggest question in this section of Scripture is this. Is John saying that we must live a life of sinless perfection after salvation in order to demonstrate that we are really a child of God? Now we all know that we sin prior to salvation. That's what salvation's about. But the question here is this. Are those who are now children of God, they are believers, having been saved, are they now to live a life of sinless perfection? If you casually read verses 6 and 9, it might lead to this conclusion, especially in translations that say simply sinning or continues in sin. But let's be honest for a moment. All of us know by experience that is, by our own lives, that we do keep on sinning after we are saved, and even that on a regular basis. We know that we continue to struggle with temptation, and more often than we like to admit, we give in to that temptation. On the other hand, that does not mean that we ought to interpret Scripture based on our experience. That certainly is a dangerous model. Now, some say, John simply got it wrong here. That John has contradicted himself, and that in a matter of just a few short verses. Remember, if you still have your Bibles open, and frankly, I can see that some of you don't, but if you still have your Bibles open, look back at chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. There we find these rather famous statements. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is." faithful and just, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So in the space of a couple of chapters, does John go from encouraging us to confess our sins? And to say that if we say we do not have sin? We are not only personally deceived, but we are calling God a liar. Does He go from that to chapter 3 saying now that we must live in sinless perfection? Clearly, there must be a better explanation than that. Especially given our belief in the inspiration of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is one of the reasons why it is good that we do an entire book of the Bible. Because as we study a whole book of the Bible, we get a better picture of the overall intent of the author as he's writing this, rather than the danger of misinterpreting Scripture as we pull it out of context. So the answers are varied. Perhaps John had a specific sin in mind, like the sin of apostasy or rebellion. Meaning that the genuine believer cannot ultimately rebel against God, or what we call apostatize. And while that's an attractive solution, most believe that what John is referring to here is a lifestyle of sin. Something that characterizes your life. That's why, if you were paying close attention, my points have been this. We have been describing a life of sin, not just describing sin, but describing a life of sin. And we started by defining a life of sin. In the ESV from which I'm reading, the authors use the word practicing. You see that over and over again. Whether it's righteousness or sinfulness or sinning, they use the word practice. Now that word practice is not in the original. That's an interpretive insertion to help us understand the meaning behind it here. These verbs are in the present tense. And because in the Greek language, the present tense speaks of continuous action, our translators have added the word practicing to help us see we're not talking about someone who commits a sin or who sins occasionally. We're talking about someone who is practicing sin. That is, this is what characterizes their life. Someone who keeps on sinning as the normal part of his or her life. Well, that begs the question, what is a life of sin? Versus sinning occasionally, what is the definition of a life of sin? What is the difference between the fact that all of us sin, and frankly regularly, and what the Bible describes as a life of of sin. Is it a matter of how many sins we commit every day? That is, we must somehow tally these up and once we reach a certain point, we've crossed the line and now we are moved over into a life of sin? And if that is the case, then surely the tally is going to change day by day. Or is it more about our attitude or our approach to sin rather than how many sins we actually commit? And I believe this gets more to the point of what John is dealing with here. So let me give you four statements that will help us in answering a description of a life of sin. And then in answering that, whether or not that is true of you and me. Number one, those who consistently do rejoice in sin are living a life of sin. So if you would say that you rejoice in sin then I would have to say you're probably living a life of sin. Now, when I say rejoice, I do not mean to imply that sin is never pleasurable. The Bible itself says that sin is pleasurable, and that is why it is so so tempting. I'm talking about your attitude. If sin is something that you rejoice in, rather than trying to avoid, then it tells me and should tell you something about your heart. Secondly, secondly, If you do rationalize your sin, then again, it probably characterizes your life. If you are unwilling to admit that sin is indeed sin, and instead try to explain it away or blame it on someone else, then that is another indicator of where your heart is. Remember, as we looked at those famous verses a couple of weeks ago that I just read for for you from chapter 1, We said that confession of sin means that we agree with God that our sin is sin. Rationalizing is basically the opposite of confession. It's an unwillingness to agree that sin is sin. The third statement I would throw out here, and these are not exhaustive, but the third statement I would throw out here to help us determine whether we are living a life of sin is if we don't regret our sin. If you don't regret your sin, that is another clue as to where your heart is and where your overall life is trending. I did a book study some years ago on Wednesday nights. It's been many years now. And the book was entitled, Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. It was written by a seminary professor by the name of Donald Whitney. And the idea of the book was to go through these ten questions, obviously as the title declares, to go through these ten questions in an effort to determine, are you a healthy Christian? Are you an unhealthy Christian? Or are you no Christian at all? And so one of those ten questions was this, do you still grieve over sin? In the Beatitudes, that is the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes, Jesus said these words, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We tend to think He is talking there, especially if we just read that in passing or out of context, we tend to think that Jesus is talking there about those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, and there then is a promise that they will be comforted. But that is not what Jesus is talking about there. That is not to say that you will not be comforted when you mourn the passing of a loved one. It's just not what that beatitude's about. That beatitude is talking about those who are grieving over their ongoing sin. Christians who are grieving their ongoing sin. And so I ask you, does sin grieve you? Not because you might get caught, or because you've already been caught, but because you know it grieves God, and therefore it hinders your fellowship with him. Well, the fourth and final statement I would make here in describing a life of sin are those who don't repent of sin. That is, if you fail to repent on a consistent basis of your sin, that is yet another indicator that you are living a life of sin. If you can continue in sin without being convicted of it, or when you are convicted of it, you ignore that conviction and keep on going, you are heading in the wrong direction. You are, as we said a few moments ago, missing the mark. The word repent means a change in mind that leads to a change in direction. In military terminology, it is an about-face. A turning away from sin and a turning toward God, and that is what genuine believers continually and consistently do. Finally, at least in this section, we're not done yet, But finally, in this section of this diabolical heritage, I I want to talk about depicting a life of sin. In other words, if everything I've said so far describes you, whether you want to admit it or not, what does this mean about you? And as usual, John is pretty clear about what this depicts. In fact, he is so clear that we'd rather not see it, and we'd rather not hear it which is frankly why some have already cut me off. But first, let me say, what this depicts, verse 6, is that you have never seen God. You say, well, that's not so bad. The Bible says that no one has seen God. But John is not talking about seeing God with our physical eyes. He's talking about seeing God with eyes of faith. And so, in essence, what John is saying there in verse 6 is that you have not seen God, which means you do not know God. You do not have faith. This is coupled in the same verse with the fact that you then do not know God. Again, the false teachers were professing to know God, and yet they were living a life of sin, or at least living as if sin didn't matter. And John makes it very clear that there is always an indication of where our faith really is. That is, our lives tell the story. And in this case, those who are living a life of sin tell the story, no matter what their words say, that they do not genuinely know God. Their actions nullify their profession. And so the depiction of the life of sin is that you do not see God with eyes of faith. You do not know God in spite of what you might profess. And then the end result is you look like your father. Your DNA test has given the answer. The results are back. And the answer is not pretty. Look at verse 8. And then we'll look again at verse 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That is, your father is the devil, if this describes your lifestyle. Verse 10, we see the same thing. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now I am not trying to say, and hear me clearly here, I am not trying to say that you are now a devil worshiper. That's not the point. I am simply saying that John is making it very clear that based on your lifestyle, your parentage, is confirmed. You are not a child of God if you are living a life of sin. In spite of the fact that the majority of our world believes that we are all children of God. That is not the biblical testimony. We are all creatures of God, but only those born, again, only those born of faith are the children of God. The rest still have a diabolical heritage. Well, let's move on to our second option, and it is much better. And I'm assuming you've stayed with me this long. You might be thinking, well, this is not exactly what I thought I would hear on this particular Sunday. I mean, with all that's going on in the world, what I really came for this morning is a word of encouragement and some hope. Well, I'm glad you've stayed as long as you have, and Frankly, while you may not think this is what you need to hear, the truth is, no matter what is going on in the world, we need to know who we belong to. And we need to know how to change teams. That is, if I have just been describing you, and you would be honest with yourself and say, I do now realize that I have a diabolical heritage. I am not a child of God. Then you need to know what the remedy is. The most important thing in this life and in the next is knowing for sure what kind of heritage you have and not being deceived about it. So let's spend the remainder of our time looking at those who have not a diabolical heritage, but those who have a divine heritage. And that sounds a lot better, doesn't it? Here we are not talking about living a life of sin, We are talking now about living a life of righteousness. And you'll notice that word righteousness is another word that is found very frequently in this passage. And, frankly, another word that sometimes we think as negative. Oh, he thinks he's so righteous. We make what is a good biblical word into a negative term in our day. But again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I am not talking anywhere close to that. We are not talking about comparing ourselves with others. We are simply talking about the way a genuine believer ought to live his or her life, and therefore what a true believer looks like. So first we see that those who have a divine heritage know their purpose. Or I'm sorry, know His purpose. That is, they know why Jesus came. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture on the reason or the purpose for the coming of Christ. And yet we often don't mention it, at least not as much as we should. Our enemy, John says, has been sinning and has been deceiving since the beginning. And this probably refers to, at least in part, the episode in the garden where Satan deceived our ancestors. But it's also likely a general statement that refers to all of the evil works of our enemy. So John says that one of the reasons Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. A victory that was prophesied all the way back in the first few chapters of Genesis. And a victory that was accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. And this victory of the works over the devil makes possible our own victory. That is because Jesus came and overcame the works of the enemy, we can have victory as well. But notice there is a second purpose that John mentions. The second purpose is found in verse 5, and that is Jesus came to remove our sin. Another clear statement as to why Jesus came. So Christians are not those who claim we have no sin. Christians are those who simply know why Jesus came. He came because we do have sin, and He is the only one who could remove them from us. Which is another reason why it is so incompatible for the believer to continue to live a life of sin. Jesus did not remove our sins so that we could continue to live in them. He who knew no sin, and we see this in verse 5 as well, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is, He took our sins and removed them, not so that we could keep on sinning, but so that He could give us His own righteousness. And because we have the righteousness of Christ, we then can live righteous lives, not in our own strength, but in the strength that He provides. But divine heritage goes beyond simply knowing the purpose of Jesus' coming, In fact, many from a doctrinal standpoint could make that statement. And so we must also say that those with a divine heritage not only know His purpose, but secondly, they know His presence. And here is where we see that word that we've talked about repeatedly. Abide, or some of your translations may say, remain. And surely with all that's going on, we now have a better understanding of what that word means. Given the fact that we have been quarantined, we've been told to stay at home, we've been told to shelter in place, or that it is safer at home, whatever catchphrase you want to use, whatever terminology our local government or the national government is using, we now have a better idea of what it means to abide, to remain at home. Now, I'm not trying to say that we ought to like it, I am not trying to say that we should get used to it or even that it compares to abiding in Jesus. I'm simply saying that the meaning of the word abide or remain has become clearer to us so that now when we apply that to Jesus, when we hear the Scriptures say abide in Him, we have a better understanding of what that means that we set aside everything else and rest and recognize His presence. As opposed to our normal, hectic life of business, with very little time left over for Him, we now make it a priority to be with Him, not as a discipline, but as a delight. And eventually we discover that when we do that, the desire for and thus the practice of sin begins to fade away. It's never completely gone. We will always struggle with it. But as we abide in the presence of God through Christ, our desire for sin dissipates as we gaze into the beauty of God our Savior. His presence is our natural place. Look at verse 9. "...because His seed abides in us, and thus we desire to abide in Him." Whether His seed refers to the Holy Spirit, Or the Word of God, or perhaps in some sense both. It doesn't really matter here. The idea is the same. God is in us, and as a result, we are to remain or abide in Him. And when we do that, we then can know His practice. Meaning that we look more like our Father. Again, that DNA test comes back, and it comes back with a match. We are looking more like Jesus, our positional righteousness in Christ. That is, we have been declared in Christ, and as we abide in Him, increasingly that positional righteousness becomes more of a practical righteousness lived out in our everyday life. Now again, I am in no way trying to say that we will be perfect, or even nearly so, but we are to strive to live righteous life, which righteous lives, which in its simplest terms means that we strive to do what is right, because we are following the example of our Savior. Which also means, verse 10, that we are to practice loving one another. We are to practice righteousness, and part of practicing righteousness is the love of one another. It's stated negatively in verse 10, that is, those who go on sinning are not loving their brothers, But as we'll see next week, and if you look ahead, you'll see it in verse 11, practicing the love of our brothers and sisters in Christ, or if we want to expand upon it, the love of neighbors, is what it means to know His practice. Now this is an argument we've heard a lot about lately. In the last few weeks, religious leaders across our country, and indeed across the world, have been making the argument that in some sense it is right to close our churches to gatherings because we love our neighbors. Meaning that we are putting the needs of our neighbors above our own. That is, we recognize their need for safety and health, and therefore we forego our need, at least temporarily, to meet together in worship for their benefit. And again, we'll talk about more, more about that next week. Loving God, loving one another, and therefore loving our neighbors is what should characterize us as believers. These practices ought to be evident in our lives because they are the practice of Jesus whose love knows no bounds. Well, as we've said throughout this study of this letter of 1 John, John speaks in such clear terms. And yet, we often struggle to believe what he says. I mean, if If your life is characterized by sin, then you do not know God, and He is not your Father. If your life is characterized by righteousness, then you do know God, because He is righteous. Now granted, believers can and do fall into sin, but we do not walk therein. It is not our normal practice, because in our normal practice, We desire to practice righteousness. Now I get that we don't like this because it comes awful close to work salvation. But again, that is not what I'm saying. If you do what is righteous, it is only because Christ has removed your sins and now abides in you. And that solution is available to anyone who will admit their sin, their need for a Savior, and trust that Jesus Christ is that Savior. You see, the good news about this DNA test is that it does not have to be permanent. Now, there's not much you can do if you do a standard DNA test. You can't change what that says. You can't change who you are or where you came from. But with a spiritual DNA test, you can change families today. And you can have, like many of us, your own divine heritage. But it's not about trying harder or doing better. It is about believing and trusting in Christ. I know our current conditions are nowhere near ideal. But it does give us some time to think. Time to examine our own relationship with God and whether or not it is truly genuine. And that is what John is urging us to do. And that is what I'm urging us to do. As you look at the overall practice of your life, what is your DNA test revealing? Be honest, because this is a serious matter. And only by being honest with yourself Will you see your need for the divine heritage that only Christ can give? Let me pray. Father, we thank You that we've had the opportunity this morning to study Your Word. And we thank You again for the clarity with which John speaks. Sometimes we don't like that clarity. Sometimes we want to raise our hands and look for an exception or an exemption. But John is very straightforward. Those whose lives are characterized by sin have a diabolical heritage. And those whose lives are characterized by righteousness have a divine heritage. And I pray that we would be able to examine our own lives and know the difference. And Lord, if there be some today who Your Holy Spirit has, has shown them that they do not know You, Maybe they knew that already. Maybe they've just discovered that today. I pray that You would help them to turn from their sin and trust in You. And that You would give them that divine heritage that will last for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take just a moment to thank you for watching. We do appreciate you joining with us online this morning. And certainly if you have any questions about what you've heard today, or questions about anything spiritually speaking, you can get in touch with us here at the church by all the regular means, email, text, phone calls, and we'll be happy to try to answer your questions.